Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I personally can tell you that as a producer, I, most of the things I've ever done have failed. As a as a representative of talent, we just talked about all the people that I have that are successful. There's a lot of people I represented who weren't successful, but I believed in them and I gave it my best shot. I certainly failed in a lot of ways. I was successful as an agent, but I failed as an agent because I couldn't get out of my own way. I think uh, a lot of that could be said about my career as a producer, but it didn't weigh me down. I didn't say, oh, I failed this time or I failed that time. I kind of just took the experience and moved on. And I think it's made me better. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard, and I am extremely excited about today's show because I am with uh, Gavin Pallone, and this is a guy I've known for a long, long time, and I, I tend to these podcasts, I tend to not be as serious about things all the time. I mean, I'm very serious about the podcast, I'm very serious about the message. But I, you know, there's a little humor laced in. But when I sit across from Gavin Pallone, every time I've been across from Gavin Pallone, even though he's very funny and he has a very dry sort of way about him, very serious. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like you you sit across from this guy and it's like literally you think to yourself, "There's a new sheriff in town." Mm -hmm. This guy is going to basically crush me like a bug. So basically, I get that because you have this way about you, this presence that's really incredible. And it's very, very, it's, it's almost like very presidential in a contemplated, casual way. What I want to share with you is really the first time I ever got to meet Gavin Pallone really extensively. I'd seen him in passing at a company was at at the time when I was starting in the business, uh, UTA, United Talent Agency, which is still in existence, and he was a big, big part of. But the time that I got to see Gavin really and talk to him was on the set of the pilot of the critically acclaimed, which normally means uh, shut down, and uh, basically America said, we're not going to watch that. That's what critically acclaimed normally means. Uh -huh show action i believe you were a producer on that barry weren't you i was an executive producer on that uh there was a shocking thing about this thing you being an executive producer on shows in the past you know and gavin knows all about this when i started being a manager one of the things i really wanted to be in that side of the business but i realized i couldn't be unless i aligned myself with great talent who wanted me next to them or wanted me around and wanted me to help in some way. And when we were doing the deal for action, what was really interesting about Jay Moore at the time was a star. He didn't really care about being an executive producer, or any kind of producer, which he could have been because he knew that this was a role where he needed to give us all to and he wanted to make sure it was a really hard acting role in the dialogue. Sometimes there was like three, four pages of dialogue, just him. And he wanted to make sure that he delivered properly and he wanted somebody looking out for him. And he said, listen, I want you to do this. It was the first time I was ever given that opportunity. One of the most amazing things about it is that the people on the set, the late Ted Demi, Don Rio, 
who had created uh, uh, Blossom and my wife and kids and has done so many different things. Chris Thompson, who I think we could all argue uh, very vehemently is a tortured genius, which at the time he had created two shows that had gotten on the air and he was walking across the soundstage to each one. One was Ladies Man with Alfred Molina for CBS and one was Action for Fox. And what we're doing in the pilot for Action Something strange happened as I was working on it with Jay and the other people. You know, what happens is is you get emailed or you get sent a call sheet for the pilot each day. And, and action was like a single camera. It's like doing a movie only for about, I think they worked on it for eight days, that particular one. And because I was new at it, I wasn't involved in all the creative decisions or what were happening. A lot of times I just get the call sheet and I remember this one morning I saw the call sheet and it had Gavin Pallone's name on it. Oh, so you didn't know that I was going to be in it? until I then? had no oh, idea. Really? Uh-huh. And so I look at it and I'm like, oh, well, he must be a producer on the show or he must be doing something. And then I looked on the call sheet and it was like he was like number, you know, seven or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was a role of an agent who was going to be going into Jay's office. And I remember the role from the pilot. But I thought they were going to hire a an actor who was. Uh, well, it was kind of written to be Ari Emanuel, and and I think that I, I got to believe that Chris tried to get Ari. I might be wrong, but I think he did. It could be. I think Ari was his agent at the time. It could be. Mm-hmm. So I was like shocked that you were doing it because I thought to myself, everybody had always told me throughout my career that hey, listen, the clients come first. You put yourself in the background, and that was one of the difficult things about starting this podcast because I wanted to do something special. I wanted to do something that was inspirational, but people told me that if I do it, clients are going to be disappointed because they don't want to know that you're doing something during your spare time that isn't involving them. They want to know that you're working for them, but I always felt that these conversations not only help them and the relationships help them, but helped other people as well. So anyway... So I see Gavin's name on the call sheet, and I'm thinking to myself, God, this is kind of weird. You know, how is this guy who really doesn't seem to have any acting experience, how is he going to come on the set? Or or talent. Or talent (laughs) and do something special. And it really struck me, and it it actually, I want to give you props, give Gavin props in this cold open, because I really believe that that moment, planted a seed in my head that eventually laid dormant for 20 years Mm -hmm. until I started this podcast because I saw that you had a passion for something when you were on the set and you know when you're doing these shows you do many many takes from different angles especially when you're doing single camera because you have to shoot it like it's a film And so you're doing this scene that's probably two minutes long, and it most likely took half a day. Knowing the way they were shooting, it could have taken the whole day. And so you're watching how this man works and the process of how he works, and he really got it, and he was passionate about it. And I I got done with it, and I took him aside, and I said, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're a phenomenal actor. (laughs) And he, said, so not true, and he said something like, that's so not true, or said something, you know, downplaying himself. But for our audience, who will only hear this right now, I thought it'd be interesting if I played that scene for Gavin right now and played it for our audience. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Suppose I could deliver you a star so big that little children in the crap-infested streets of Calcutta know his name. Tony, I'm eating spring rolls. Sorry, but suppose I could deliver this huge star. I mean, a guy better known than Tom Hanks, and you'd only have to pay him scale. Who is it? Well, he's a very complicated client. Who is? I can't tell you. Can you give me a hint? He's had some legal problems. Drugs? Is it Robert Downey Jr.? No, Pete, my man's clean. Straight arrow. Strong, healthy. Can you give me a bigger hint? Well, he was falsely accused of a double murder. Now, because of the potential PR problems, my agency can't officially represent him. You're pitching me, O.J. Simpson. Yes, I am. Pete, little children in Calcutta know his face. Yes, they know to run away from it. The name is more recognizable than Tom Hanks. 
Okay, you know what? But to be fair, Tom Hanks refuses to go that extra mile and hack his wife to death. He was acquitted, man! Pete, with all due respect, someone's gonna put him in something, and people are gonna want to see him. Sure, at first is a curiosity, but I think they're gonna be pleasantly surprised with his acting chops. Now, he's been studying with a coach. I recently saw him do a monologue from Raisin in the Sun. Really? How was that? Truthfully, it was very moving. Cody? Yeah? Get out. How about a villain? He'll play a villain. Come on! Who's scarier? You're scarier. Yeah. Come on, Peter. Just the shock value sells a million tickets, and he's going to bargain basement raids. Hey, Pete, do you play golf? You know what? I think I just threw up, like, inside my throat. Get out, please. Okay. But just a word of warning. The guys at Fox are all over him. God, he's a good agent. And the scene ends with, God, he's a great agent. Uh, I've seen that a few times recently because every time I'm, you know, if I'm producing something, some somebody on the set finds it on YouTube and then and then goes and uh, and plays it. I, I'm actually not that bad. I have to say, I, I I've seen myself in other things where I'm really terrible, but in that particular thing, I think that I really understood the character. Yes, and I believe this was uh, Gavin's first thing ever that he ever did. And he showed me that he had a passion for certain things. And I think the lesson here is I sit across from Gavin Pallone, if you followed his career and you know what he's done throughout being an agency partner, throughout being a person who was fighting to get his pilot on the air and fighting to get press, throughout his management company days, throughout representing people who are geniuses like Conan O'Brien and, and Larry David, to producing movies and television shows that have gone to syndication and writing pieces uh, for established, really respected magazines and doing these different things as well as acting, I realized that the lesson to me when I sit across from Gavin Pallone is, and to everybody out there, if you have a passion for something and you're just doing one thing, sometimes people tell you all the time, just go with whatever it is, find your lane and go with it. But I think for me, the lesson when I sit across from Gavin is the fact that don't always believe that you only have one lane because chances are you have multiple talents, multiple things you can work on. And these are things that can not only expand your horizon, expand your career, but it can expand your inspiration to the world. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. The way it kind of works is, you know, especially when you represent television writers, which was the, the bulk of my business and the, the most lucrative part of my business, I would, uh, you know, sign everybody on the shows. Like if you have a top writer on the show, you go sign all the people down the list because it's very easy. You know, they want they all want to be big writers and they go, oh, my boss, his agent wants me I got to be with them they'd leave their clients so you know I ended up because I at, around that time I also signed Larry David and then si Seinfeld had already been on the air but I took now, him now tell me what where La Larry David was at the time that you were signing him and what was he doing uh, he was at William Morris, and I had read a feature script of his that I really liked. I didn't know anything about what he was doing in TV. In fact, I had heard, and then I, I think I had heard from somebody else. I already represented a friend, two, two of his friends, a guy named Larry Charles, who went on to become, you know, a big television writer and the director of Borat and Bruno and a lot of other movies. And, uh, and then, and I represented another great writer, Elaine Pope, and they were both friends with Larry, and I had read his feature script, and so... I called Larry and said, hey, I represent your friends, and I love this feature. You know, what's going on? And he said, well, I'm doing this this TV show. He had done a, the pilot of Seinfeld with Jerry Seinfeld, and then they were doing four more episodes. And I was like, oh, whatever, that'll go down the tubes. And like, Jerry Seinfeld, what the f***? He's been on forever. <laughs> but I really, I could take this guy's script, his feature script that I read, and I could go get him, you know, rewrite work. And I could get this guy making, easily making 600 grand a year 
you know, doing rewrites and polishes because he's hilarious. He's, so I called him, and he, in fact, by that time, I was confident, and he's like, uh, you know, I'm happy with my agents. And for our audience, a polish, if you don't know, is when you take a script that, that maybe a studio has, they've already got it ready to go. Normally, the writer they have, they've asked to do a polish, but for some reason, he doesn't give them what they want. Sometimes they'll hire extra comedy people to come in, go through the script, and add funny to it. So I said, well, you know, I'd like to meet with you. I think I, I could do a good job. And he said, well, I, I really like Adam Berkowitz, who was his agent at William Morris, and uh, so I'm not really looking for an agent. And I go, well, come on, let's just have dinner with me, and we'll talk about it. And he's like, you know, in Larry's mind, because he's like, free dinner? Okay. <laughs> and uh, I went to dinner with him, and I asked Jeremy to come with me. Jeremy came with me because he knew who Larry was. So you was. asked your guy who you were arguing with a yeah, lot. Yeah, but we had, we had patched it up, and, you know, Jeremy's really good. You know, so I wanted to get this guy. And Jeremy already had read another script of his a long time ago because Jeremy had been a William Morris at one point, so he knew who Larry was. And again, neither of us gave a shit about Seinfeld. Like, what the f*** could that be? It's nothing. But we knew that we, he was a good feature writer, and that was my whole point. So we have lunch with a, a dinner with him. And he's like, I, you know, I, I'm going to stay. I'm not leaving my agency. And I said, all right, well, how's it? Why is it going so well? Why are you so happy with it? And then he would pr proceeded to tell me about how a year and a half earlier, this was before Seinfeld was produced. They had cut him. They called him to cut him from the agency. And he had to call his old agent who had left the agency and said, they're cutting me from, from the agency. They're dropping me as a client. And the old agent called them and got them to keep him. And I said, doesn't sound like really a lot of commitment for you. Like, <laughs> and he kind of put it in his mind. And I said, well, what have they really done? I mean, did they get you, Seinfeld? Go, no, Jerry called me and, you know, we started working on this thing together. I go, so they didn't really do that. Do you have a good deal on the show? No, I, a really bad deal. I'm really unhappy with it. <laughs> I don't see why you're saying you want to stay. And that just started my process. And I just, I mean, the, the show was, was in production, but it hadn't aired. And I just worked on him for a year and a half. And the show got on the air and then people liked it. And then it got another order. And I just kept up the pressure uh, and eventually was able to sign him. So I had, you know, so then I had him and then Larry Charles and Elaine Pope were on the show. So what ends up happening is I'm able to sign most of the writers on The Simpsons and most of the writers on Seinfeld. So now I have most of the writers on the two best shows on TV as that progressed. And then it became super easy to just sign anybody else that I wanted. And then I also but had... how do you service the people when you have so many? Well, I also had a lot of feature writers. All my feature writers were starting to pop. So... Uh, basically, unlike a lot of other agents, I never was really proprietary in terms of myself and like not bringing people in to work with my clients. And so other than maybe the very top people that I had represented around that time and towards the end of my agenting career, you know, I always brought other people in, you know, really only I dealt with David Kep or Larry David or Conan O'Brien, who I signed at that time, or recent Gene. But, you know, further down the list, like Judd Apatow, who I represented or others, uh, or a lot of other great writers, uh, or Linwood Boomer went on to, you know, create Malcolm in the Middle and other people that I represented, I would bring other agents in and they would sort of help and I would come in when necessary. So towards the end of being an agent at UTA, I, uh, you know, I had maybe 70 clients, but I had other people other than the, maybe the top 10 helping me with everybody. And you mentioned Conan. Uh, how did you end up working with Conan? Conan was a super hot writer. I had already knew him because he, would, he had been Howie Klein's client. And he went with Howie Klein, and Howie was his manager. And he was a the hot writer on The Simpsons. And back then, everybody got an overall deal if you were on The Simpsons or Seinfeld or any of those shows. You'd get a lot of money. They'd put up a lot of money under an overall deal. So someone would be paying you to develop new shows. But back then, like the mid-range deals were... 800000 a year, and the big deals were up to you know $5 million a year. And so if you were on a hot show and people wanted you, that would be there. And that that deal was really out there for, for Conan. And I just want to explain to our audience, when a, a studio makes a deal like that for a writer, an overall deal, like an $800,000 deal or up to a $5 million deal, the way it works is, is that they negotiate what their fee will be for a pilot and what their fee will be per episode as an executive producer on a particular show if they get it and normally what the studios try to do is they try to burn off a hundred percent of the deal is applied they try but great representatives don't allow that to happen let me explain so if somebody's getting let's say a million dollars on a let's say a four-year deal or a two-year deal or whatever a million it is, dollars a year yeah 
uh, whatever it is. Their goal is to get them on the air. And when they get them on the air, those people don't norm. If it's 100 percent applied, they don't get paid any money until their fees have equaled a million dollars and then they get it. But great agents like Gavin would try to get maybe 50 percent of it applied. And so they they'd make more money. Oh, yeah, I would get them a lot. I would get all my clients a lot of money and none of them would recoup and the, the studios would get screwed. But Back then, there was just so much money flying around in the television business in a different kind of way. Um, but Conan was the hot writer, and then he did, he left Howie, and he didn't have anybody, and he was meeting with agents. And every he met with everybody, and he had like eight meetings. Like anybody who was like an agent that anybody knew, he would meet with them. And so, of course, I had knew him because I had been Howie's assistant, and I got into the same horse race to try to get him. I had a couple different meetings, but, you know, you talked to him, and I would say, well, what do you want to do going forward? And he said, I want to perform. And I said, then we'll make you a performer. Again, we'll make going work. back to your career, a guy was, uh, he was the president of the Harvard Lampoon as a junior and as a senior, which was unprecedented. Yeah. And then he got a job on Saturday Night Live out of college. Uh, he got a job at Not Necessarily the News and then Saturday Night Live. Sorry. Yeah. And he was he was partnered with another writer, Greg Daniels. Greg Daniels. A huge writer. Co-created The Office, Parks and Rec, and King of the Hill, I believe. Yeah, exactly. And he, and so he was, so Conan was super hot, but everybody, you know, the other agents were all kind of thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you want to perform. I've heard that before, but we'll, you know, you'll, we'll, we'll put you in an overall deal for a couple million bucks a year. And I didn't, you know, to me, when he said he wanted to perform, I actually looked at it from a selfish point of view as, well, maybe he could be a performer. Like, I already had better writers than every other agent. That was undoubtable. But, like, I didn't have any – I had one or two performers, you know. I had I was just starting to move into other areas. I was just getting clients who were starting to direct and were looking like they could become directors. And I wanted to have actors, and I wanted to have that. And he – and Conan was the funniest guy ever. And so I went and saw a stage show that he had done with another writer named Robert Smigel that they had done in Chicago. So, and I went, we all know from TV Funhouse and Saturday Night Live <laughs> and uh, Triumph the Insult Dog. Yeah, and the, the Chicago guy that he does with George Went. And we, um, you know, I had seen him and I thought he was great. Like, I believed it. I thought he could do this. And I think he, as opposed to the other agents, he knew I was sincere about this, that I wasn't going to try to jam him into an overall deal, that I was thinking... That he would be, um, you know, he would be a performer, and I, you know, I, I basically won the Derby. And what's he, interesting is you won the Derby, and you say one of the things you said about your writer clients: Hey, you know, I represent the executive producer of The Simpsons or the, the head guy on Seinfeld. It was easy to get those writers because I had people in that lane. But here, Conan's in a sweepstake. He's, he's meeting eight to ten agencies. Everybody, the greatest agents in the world, are, are meeting with him who have clients who are on camera and writing you don't have anybody like that really yet he believes enough in you to say hey i'd like to be your first in that area yeah oh he's he's an ex you can't fool him he's as smart a guy as you're going to come up with so i think he could judge the sincerity of the situation and i truly believed it and i was right you know Awesome. So tell me about how um, your company, Bauer Benedict, became United Talent Agency. Well, by that point, I was a partner at the agency. And, uh, you know, this is, this is I don't know, 91, 90. The other guys, well, I wasn't a partner yet, but the other guys, uh, the guys who were owners of the agency would say, you know, we want to, you know, they would get offers to merge or there'd be discussions. So there was a conversation about merging with Broder, Curlin, Webb, which was a big writing company with a lot of writers. And then Leading Artist, the, which was run by a guy named Jim Burkus, was really pushing hard to see if they could merge. And they kind of had a similar business with writers, and yet they had some actors that were good and some directors that were big. But they had a big TV business. And I felt like those were the guys I hated most because the ones who were always coming after my clients was were, were this guy, Marty Adelstein, was just always trying to get my clients. Who so uh, produced really... Prison Break and now the new uh, show on ABC, Christella? You know, so there was a lot of competition between me and them. And I had lost one. I hadn't lost many clients in the course of my career, but I had lost one to them. Now, don't um, you don't you look toward yourself as karma because you met with uh, Larry David? He was represented. You took him away from Adam Berkowitz and uh, his most company. Of, most of the clients, I, 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 you know, Judd Apatow was at CAA. Most of the clients I got were with somebody. So else. you're you're doing the same thing to people. So is it bad that you <laughs> when you think somebody's doing it to you? Do you how do you feel about it? I want to kill them, but they wanted to kill you. 
Right, but I have to kill them before they kill me, Gary. <laughs> you know, that's the way it works. You know, if you're a lion in the, you know, out there in the jungle, and the other lion wants to be the top lion, they want to kill you, and you got to kill them, and whoever wins, wins, you know? So I really didn't like those guys, and I was angry about losing this one writer I represented, a guy named Kevin Curran, and... He and I lost him to Gary Cosey, who was the other agent. They, I heard they were, and they said they were meeting with leading artists about merging. And I said, yeah, I, you can't merge with them. I hate them. And he's like, we're just being polite, is what Marty Bauer told me. And then they eventually merged with them. And again, I thought about leaving. And I almost went to Intertalent, where Bill Block was. And then Marty talked me into staying. And so, you know, the merger took place. And, you know, I continued to do really well because of that and uh, because of the merger. I mean, I, did, I think it did help me. Uh, irrespective of the other acrimony that just took place when you try to merge two very different corporate cultures, which is which was true. Awesome. And so at UTA, you, you became a partner immediately when they no, moved? No, it was a little later because what happened was a couple of the – of, uh, of one partner, a guy named Rob Rothman, left. He was unhappy with the merger, and he went and started his own company. And then Marty Edelstein – was probably about to become a partner, and then he decided to leave and go to CAA before then. So they had a big hole. Somebody had to run the television area. Uh, Gary Cosey. But you're only like 28 or 29. Yeah, but I had a big business. And Gary Cosey, who had a huge television business, wasn't really the kind of person who wanted to do that. And so it was like, it had to be me. And so they, they basi basically, I became, I became the next partner. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And so you became a partner. Things are going great at UTA, amazingly well. Also, you know, they're signing great comedy people like Jim Carrey and people like that. Yeah. So you have it's it's becoming like the place to be. Everything's going your way. Everything's great. I can't imagine what your bonus structure was at that point in time starting a new company. And then you're at the height of everything and you decide, you know what, I don't I don't want this agency thing isn't for me anymore. I want to. That's not at all what happened. I didn't decide anything. They fired me. The no, but before <laughs> they fired you, you. No, I, what happened was, before they fired me, I had been discontent all the time. I was really nasty and abusive to them. I was like a fifteen-year-old girl and and in, in a household yelling at her mother, you know, about how she doesn't get me and she doesn't appreciate me and I'm gonna show you and maybe I'll run away. Why and did that you was feel like every hour. Why did you feel unappreciated? Because I had my head up my ass. I was just constantly angry, which also made me successful. I was working all the time. I felt like everybody else didn't work as hard as I do. And it was just it was just constantly me comparing myself to other people, thinking that I was better than them. And and truthfully being rewarded for bad behavior, being rewarded for pushing everybody so hard. Because every time I would go to them and say, you guys don't appreciate me and I work harder than you, you know, you'd have nothing without me because I was bringing in a lot of money and I was working very hard. And I also had, you know, it was good that they had me from just a performance point of view, but I was just torturous. So they would give me more money every time. Every time I would go and like beat them up and say, I'm unhappy and I might leave and that kind of thing, they would just improve my deal. But the deal that you had, let's face it, you know, the only way to improve it is on the back end of the deal, because even if they give you more money up front, you know, you're going to make that money anyway, and you go into percentages. So, I mean, did it make any difference or was it always improving on the end? No, the it didn't really. The money wasn't the issue. It was my head that was the issue. It's like I couldn't get, I couldn't be calm. So you're at the top of your game. You no, have I all these clients and listen. they fire you. And tell me about that day. Uh, well, I wasn't expecting it. You know, the day, basically, I, I mean, I was just scoring. I was signing everybody. I mean, literally the day before, I had gone and had a meeting with Brian Grazer, and I was going to sign Imagine Television, and they agreed. 
And then it's like every day I would sign somebody else or somebody else would perform really well. And, uh, and things were going really well. And, um, you know, ultimately there had been other, and it's too long a story to go through, but they, there had been other kind of infighting between Jim Burkus and Marty Bauer about who's running the company. And I was really planning on leaving and they knew that I was going to like wait to the end of my contract and I was going to bring all the people that were loyal to me, which were a lot of the people in, in the TV department, but also the feature department, because I would sign people and hand them off to those people. So they didn't want me to leave. And they and I was going to go start my own company. That would have been my plan. And they knew that. And I basically told them that, which was so stupid and immature. Because if you want to do it, you don't go say, hey, here's what's going to happen and allow them to strategize what to do. And kind they, of like you did with Bauer Benedict when you told them you were fired. Uh, well, you, gave I see, that, you gave them that information. We mean at ICM? Yeah, when you let yeah. when you got fired. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I gave them all the information. It was just stupid. But again, I'm immature. I was 31 by this time. And they, they you know. What age do you feel that you weren't immature? You, you use age a lot. I'm just curious. What was the age where you actually said to yourself, you know what? I'm a man now. I'm not playing that card anymore. It was about eight weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> all right keep going i'm sorry so you so uh, you know i i just mishandled everything honestly looking back on it they started the company i didn't the money thing wasn't the issue i was treated really well i just it was really all about my own insecurity that people were going to screw me in some way and i had to constantly attack 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 in order to stop them from screwing me and that was just not true and they you know, stupidly kind of tried to figure out a way that they could fire me. They? Uh, well, the, the, some of the board members of the, of the company could fire me. Marty Bauer had already been kind of like marginalized within the company because of different fights that they had. And so, you know, the, the people who were ultimately running it other than me kind of grouped together and try to come up with a way of getting rid of me and being able to sort of keep my clients and not pay me. And it's very intricate and more more than I want to discuss right now. But ultimately, they kind of accused me of things I never did and said they could fire me for cause. And they should have gone to lawyers and figured out a better way to do it, because ultimately they, they could have done it in a smarter way, which allowed me for an opening to, you know, fight back with them. And so they I, I literally had no clue that I was being fired. And they called me on a Sunday morning and I was reading a screenplay and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll sell this screenplay. And I get a phone call. And one of them said, you know, uh, I hope you're sitting down. We're going to fire. We're, we're letting you go for cause. And I'm like, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And uh, I called a lawyer and, you know, didn't know what to do. And I uh, I sued them. And and you never got back into the building after that phone call? Yeah, I did. Uh, well, that day after they fired me, I immediately that Sunday got a meeting with a litigator through a friend. And I went to the building because I had to get my checkbook. Like I thought, oh, I've never hired a lawyer before, so I'm, I'm going to have to pay a retainer. I better get a checkbook. So I went to the building, and they had they had actually hired a guard who was standing outside the building waiting for me who would not allow me into the building. Eventually, after about three days, my lawsuit was settled. And You settled a lawsuit in three days? Well, yeah, because they had, they had screwed it up on their end, fortunately, because they could have done it in a better way, and probably I would have been in trouble. And uh, in the end, I, you know, they did, I did come back to get my things, uh, which was a very intense, you know, kind of situation to go back in and everybody looking at you because the, the offices back then, they're no longer in that same building, but the offices back then were like a big sort of uh, bullpenny kind of thing and all the offices were glass so everybody could see me walk in and collect my boxes of stuff and leave. Did anybody come up to you in the hallway? Because that's always a scary thing when somebody's coming and you don't want to align yourself with the guy who who just got fired. Did anyone have the balls to come up to you and say, hug you and say, listen, we're going to miss you? No. But I had seen those people like that weekend, like that Sunday it was in the morning. And then later I played basketball with everybody from the that I played basketball with, you know, uh, at the at the uh, company. And, you know, they were close friends. And I eventually talked to them. And it strained a lot of the relationships because people had to make decisions. I mean, I was very close to a couple of the agents who had benefited from me over the years. And I expected them to be loyal to me. And I had stupid expectations of that as well. Like after I went to become a manager and with Judy Hoffland. With Judy Hoffland. And then I expected all the people who were loyal to me to then flood out of the agency and go to other agencies. And I tried to, you know, help them do that. And then they thought, you know, the the guys at UTA, the people who were left to run UTA were smart and they they went and offered more money to all of them and, and locked most of those people down. I took it personally that they wouldn't leave because of how I had been treated. But 
later I realized that I had been really overly self-centered in that whole thing. And, you know, they did what was best for them. And eventually I pretty much became friends with all of those same people. And you transfer to be a manager. And, you know, normally clients don't want to pay an extra 10% if they don't have a manager at the time. How did you convince these behemoths in the business to give you extra money, which they weren't them, paying it before? A lot of them didn't have agents. A lot of them just came with me and didn't have agents. Um, so you were a majent. Somewhat. And I had a few that did go, and some of them were willing to pay that. The reality was I didn't take, you know, I had so many clients. I had more people who wanted to come with me than I was willing to take. And so in the end, I think like, you know, a few of them were willing to have agents and managers. Some some people I couldn't take with me because they already had, you know, I had a bunch of clients with Jimmy Miller. So he wasn't going to, you know, he they, they were going to stay with their managers. And then a few that just didn't want to have an agent and, and were big enough so that they, I, they, you know, just let me represent. Now, certain people like Jimmy Miller, uh, who uh, runs Mosaic and also represents Will Ferrell and Adam McKay and Judd Apatow, certain people like that, you there were certain people in the business that you didn't go after, that you didn't try to take their clients. Why was Jimmy Miller one of those people? Well, I'd never go after any manager's clients. That's not right. But you'd go after an agent's It's a different business. It was like the protocol of being a manager, you don't try to steal clients from any other manager. So really? I never did. You know that happens all the time. Maybe now. I mean, again, this is 18 years later, So, and I don't even know. It just wasn't something I was going to do. I mean, I was friends with these people. Like, I, I was the management managers who represented my clients were all friends of mine, and I would never want to be involved in that. For the audience that doesn't understand why you wouldn't take a client from a manager as a manager, but you take them as an agent as an agent, they're all asking the question out there in the world, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that's that's a different business. You know, in that business, you go and you steal each other's clients. They were calling my clients and I was calling their clients. I also intentionally did not become friends with any of the agents that were out there who were my competitors because I didn't want to. Like sometimes it would come up like people would say, well, why don't you meet this guy who's at CA? And I don't want to meet anybody at CA. I want to take their clients. If you meet them and become friends with them, you're not going to do that. And the People at, at ICM, mo for the most part, like if they were friends, stayed friends of mine, they didn't go after my clients after I left ICM. I never went after anybody of theirs. But for the most part, they did, you know, so then it was open season. And with Judy uh, and your partnership there, great partnership. But I thought what was kind of odd was it seemed like she was more interested in just the representation business and being in that world. I think you were more interested in the representation business and how it led to executive producing and being creatively involved in things. Is that a correct? Uh, yeah. Assessment? And after six years, I pretty much stopped managing and I let go of all of my management clients except for Conan because I did very quickly realize, you know, it would be hard for me to be a manager and a producer at the same time. Um, and so that would mean not not managing anymore or not producing anymore. And I thought about that too. I mean, as I was going through kind of being circumspect about what I was doing, being a manager is a great job and really kind of an easy job. But I felt like I wasn't extending myself creatively or mentally. I was doing stuff that I had done for years. And maybe I, you know, part of it, I was literally thinking, well, maybe I'll just do the management business, which is not that time consuming. I didn't have that many clients. And a lot of my clients were writers who were under deals. So therefore, like the amount of work I had to do was very minimal. And it's not like, you know, for you representing comedians, you know, they've got shows, they've got a new thing happening all the time. If you represent a, if you represent writers and you make a three-year deal for them, I call them, hey, you want to go to lunch? Oh, I'm kind of busy. I got to be in the writer's room. Okay. I mean, there's not that much to do. So that was a possibility. And then I would have to find another thing to do, but I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable doing both because I was starting to initiate my own production uh, projects. And because I had been a manager even if I didn't have any clients involved, which a lot of the stuff that I was doing didn't have clients involved, people would say to me, they think that I did, and they would treat me differently. And I'm sure you probably picked that up too. Like they don't treat you the same way if you manage someone who's on the production. And sometimes they would treat me that same way, like I'm a, I'm a manager, not the real producer of the project, even if I didn't represent anybody. Yeah, there's a stain involved in that because a lot of managers, they just glam on and they just... Uh, oh, yeah. Most. And they just take the credit and the money and they never show up and they n never do any of the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I decided I'm going to separate these two things. The production stuff was going really well. I had a lot of projects and I just thought I would focus on that. But I couldn't let go of Conan because that's 
you know, that's the uh, dream job of all time. Absolutely. And so, I still manage him. Which is amazing. And Hoffman Pallone goes the course, and then you decide you want to start your own company, Pariah. How does that happen? Well, I kept both going simultaneously for a while. And then, you know, it just came time for Judy and I. Like I was, and then when I was down to just one client, there was no point of, my, of us maintaining the same offices and all of that. And she was a great partner to have. Like really, in, in terms of, you know, my career, from that trajectory, the only one where it just worked 100%. She's a wonderful woman. So oh, she's amazing. Of, and she just for you and the audience to know, she represented people like Sally Field, Kenneth Branagh, Julia Louis Dreyfus, uh, Kevin Klein. She's amazing, amazing person in the business. And she actually recently retired, I believe. And she's so happy. <laughs> she's really like one of the happier people I know. You know, so then I just sort of moved on and started producing. Six degrees of separation. So now we're going to go into a little different direction here. I want to just uh, do a little word association with you. And if you could, if there's a little story or something thought you have in your mind about somebody before we ride off in the sunset. <laughs> Just, you know, sure. maybe there's a story, maybe there's something that might mean something to our audience in an inspirational way. Larry David. You know, it's an interesting thing. Like, I really have to look at Larry David as from just such a, I, was so, I had such good fortune. And part of the reason why I've had good fortune I'm, is I made my own fortune to some extent by being active. And there's a lot of people I would represent and I think this person's going to be great and they don't turn out to be that or they're difficult people or their career doesn't work for one reason or another. People, you know, you know, sometimes people are super talented and they can't keep it together so that they actually can succeed. And sometimes the luck is really with you and you, you know, and in my pushing to get involved with Larry has been so fortunate to me. I've had you know, projects, stuff that I've been able to be a producer on. Curb Your Enthusiasm, one of but, the greatest shows but ever. But I've been able to be involved with, like, different things that I thought were great, and maybe I didn't get the right break, and I could go back and say, hey, this thing would have succeeded had I got the right support from the network or, or the movie studio. But where I really got fortunate was, like, being involved with Larry because I have to say, I think I worked really hard for him. I think I negotiated good deals for him when he was on Seinfeld. But this was just like where I really, I, it was really, it really benefited me. I mean, to be involved with Curb Your Enthusiasm, even though there's not much I could do for Larry. I mean, Larry, Larry has it all. Larry has the vision. Larry knows what he's doing, you know, and I feel like such a debt of gratitude. It's not one of these things where I felt like, oh, it's totally symbiotic. He and I, I did this for him and he did this for me. It's really a situation where I'm in a huge deficit to have been involved with a man like him. One of the true creative geniuses that I've ever met. And I don't necessarily throw that word around like it was a dollar bill. I mean, this guy is is a genius and a true unique voice. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how much more I could say. No, it's great. And very generous. He was very generous to keep me involved. Judd Apatow. Judge, you know, uh, it, it's a different kind of a thing. You know, I signed him early on before he was as hot as he was. And then I probably, you know, I didn't get to keep representing him as he became such a superstar. But again, it's the same kind of thing. A lot of people have talent. A lot of people also can have less talent, but know how to play the game and put things together. That's another guy where he could do it all. He really could do it all. I mean, he's a really great writer. But he was also he's also a great manager of people and he's also a really good director. And there's a reason for it. You know, there's a reason why people like him have have that kind of level of success. And you really do see it's not luck. Absolutely. Although you didn't represent him, it was one of the first things you started with uh, Gary Shandling. You know, I didn't really have a relationship with Gary Shandling all that much. He seemed like a pretty funny guy and a really quirky uh, guy. It's uh, I, I kind of. I always really enjoyed his voice and I really liked his, you know, his product. And that goes back to his standup. His standup was always, you know, genius. But that's the one thing that really is important when you're talking about comedy is like the authentic voice. And Larry had that and Conan has that. Gary Shanley had that. And all the people, the people that are truly great, Tim Allen or whoever, who've had the outside success, they authentically are that thing that you latch on to, I do believe. David Fincher. He's an asshole. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Larry Charles. He's a, he's a wonderful person <laughs> and uh, a true friend and a, and a gigantic talent. And you know what? In some ways, I would say Larry Charles is kind of a mentor to me. I mean, he's kind of the older. In, in some ways, I see Larry Charles as the older brother that I never really had. I really do adore him. The experience of 
panic room and producing a movie that made hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, that's a, it's a very frustrating experience because when you're producing a movie, your power is greatest when you're hiring the director. And then after you hire the director, it all sort of fades away, unless it's maybe a first-time director. And so the studio really looks to you to be the person guaranteeing that this will work. In the case of that movie, it's like, you know, as soon as we hired David Fincher, it was a David Fincher movie, and he wasn't going to let anybody else have any kind of real participation. So it was very frustrating because I feel like that movie could have been better and more successful and certainly delivered at a lower cost than it had been, um, mostly because of Fincher's egotism. And, you know, he there are things that he does really well. I'm not going to deny that. But I feel like the perception of him is probably greater in terms of what, you know, of people's esteem than it deserves to be. Got it. Anything about Conan O'Brien you want to share for our audience that maybe they don't know that you've experienced that uh, something? You know, I think it's a couple things. First, I would say, like, if you haven't seen uh, Conan O'Brien Can't Stop, you really get the understanding of who he is as a person which is someone who has a certain amount of, you know, edge to him, which you don't necessarily fully see on television. But at the secondly, also what a genius he is. I mean, just going, I mean, I go to the show every week and I sit in the, I sit in the meeting that they have, you know, where they're going through the monologue and he's kind of warming up. And truly, if you could film that, you would have the greatest television show of all time. I mean, he's, and it, it's been that, it was that way. And it, notably, if you talk to anybody who ever worked with him on The Simpsons, they say he's the funniest person they've ever been around. He is funnier than anybody. And when you're around him in a, in a situation where he can be completely unleashed because there's no standards and practices and he can talk about whatever he wants, I, I would defy anybody to find someone funnier than Conan. And then the second thing is, one thing, that, and you'll know this well, people become famous, they become powerful, and they become rich. You, get, you can't help it. You become surrounded. You're in a bubble of protection that keeps you from the truth. And most of those kinds of big stars end up, you know, doing what it was human to do, which is I want to hear the good news and I want people to agree with me. And so they surround themselves with those people and then they don't ever really understand what's truly going on and it usually leads to their demise. I've been fortunate enough to have his trust for a long time and so I never ever think something and don't say it. I tell him what I think. I've been wrong. I've been right. But and this is a, a very, very kind of narrow perspective on what happens in the manager-client relationship. Very few people ever really, who are in his position, ever allow that. And he does allow that. And that's why he's able to keep going and be a great guy. So even if I, if I tell him something he really doesn't want to hear, he, he might push back at me, but he ultimately appreciates it. And the fact that he's been able to keep himself centered and understand who he is as a person without becoming so egotistical that he can't hear a contrary point of view, I think is a testimony to not only his career, but him as a man. And I, I truly, truly respect him as much as anybody in the world. And like how I felt about my relationship with Larry David, I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful that he's allowed me to participate in that. Oh, I feel the same way about him. And Larry, tell me about your biggest disappointments or the toughest moment and what you learned from that biggest disappointment or your toughest moment. Well, you know, I mean, we're just talking about my business life. I think a lot of my disappointments are more personal than that, and I'm not going to talk about them. But I think in business, first of all, it's just that, like I was telling you, like that I was young and super successful and living my fantasy, kind of being a rock star and then couldn't appreciate it so filled with anger and insecurity that I had to be fighting and attacking everybody and never feel like anything was good enough rather than to say, hey, I'm 29 years old and I'm making a massive amount of money, more money than I was ever imagining that I would make and driving fancy cars and dating a lot of women and doing exactly like what a teenage boy would think that would be fun. But yet I, I still acted so much like a teenage boy that I couldn't appreciate it. And, you know, I know it's, it's just such a cliche, but the, the idea that youth is wasted on the young is so true. So now at 50, I look back and I go, what an asshole I was. And why couldn't I at least go, I wish I had a father or a Barry Katz who would say, hey, why are you enjoying this? You're so angry. Why are you so angry and dissatisfied? Let's look at your life for a second. Who gets to live your life? You know, such a small group of people. And that, that's really my biggest disappointment is, is in myself, in my own inability to get out of my own way and get out of my own head and say, hey, this is great. Why don't I enjoy it and be happy? Because I also kind of felt like 
a lot of what made me successful was this anger and rage that I had. I had so much rage. And it's not true. I could have been equally as successful and maybe more successful, but I would have enjoyed it. I would have been better to other people. And and maybe certain opportunities that I had been given uh, wouldn't have been wasted because I would have been able to appreciate them. Have you made the switch? And if you have made the switch from asshole and unappreciative guy and angry guy to less angry and more appreciative and spiritual guy was there a moment where the switch happened yeah what uh, no there's a series of moments i certainly you know tom shadiak had his moment which was the accident that he yeah. had what was your moment that well turned it's not you? a moment but it's a progression of things where i had to go and look at myself and and also just you know a lot of different things that had happened but it really all kind of came to pass in the years after i was fired i got into another lawsuit with uta over you know them feeling like i wasn't holding to the settlement agreement my continuing to be uh, and then suing them and back and forth and that and that was very stressful at that particular point in time and then you know i just again a couple different times like i mean there was this one moment where this was in i think 2006 so it wasn't even that long ago but where I was, a, I played a lot of poker, and uh, you were in the World Series of Poker. Well, anybody can be in the World Series of Poker. Any idiot shows up with money, they can be in the World Series of Poker. But I was playing poker at a casino, and you know, I still had that kind of anger thing going. And uh, I think I had some guy had said something to me I didn't like, and I stood up and said, "Let's go out in the parking lot and fight," and, or whatever. And I would do that a couple times, and they were going to throw me out of the casino. It was so there was a moment there where I kind of got outside myself and thought, "What?" this is ridiculous. You know, I mean, that's embarrassing. I thought I got to get in control of this, you know? And, uh, I started just thinking more about my life, you know, that I thought I had gotten through that, but I really hadn't. And I think over since then, you know, in the, in the eight years or nine years since that moment, I, I really started thinking about me, thinking about what life means, thinking about what's important to me. I really have let go of any anger that I had that probably stemmed from my childhood. And I really wake up in the morning and think I am so lucky to be able to do basically whatever I want to do. And I'm so lucky to be able to pass on associations or projects or business ventures or anything that I don't want to do and be able to continue forward with my relationship with Conan or my relationship with other people that I had represented over time and make make the choice of doing exactly what I want to do. And very few people are allowed to do that in life. And I think, and I'm so lucky to be able to do that. And, you know, something that you even brought up, I mean, I maintain perspective and I gain perspective and I don't let go of it. So a really good friend of mine died a little under two years ago and of cancer. He was such a good guy and he, he was a great father and everybody loved him. And, you know, then I look at me and I go, I'm in superior health and I continue on. And it just showed that to me that there isn't, I don't believe, you know, you said like that I'm spiritual. I'm not spiritual. Like I don't believe there's any plan. I don't think there's anything metaphysical out there. I feel like I've just have had a lot of good fortune and why, cause it just, life isn't fair. Like why him? He's, everybody liked him. Why would he leave his, why would he have to die? And his, his, you know, kids are left without a father. And I think about that kind of stuff and it causes me to say, you know, I don't want to lose sight of being appreciative of that. And when I see, you know, a news report about an accident or Ebola or something else, to me, it's the same way that like you, you, you gain some perspective from, you know, that disabled kid seeing that there's kids that are more disabled. That doesn't mean I don't get frustrated in traffic, but it means that I stop myself and say, why don't I just zoom out a little bit and see what I have? And I, I can't, I don't really know anybody who's as lucky as I am. I think. Proudest moment professionally well, unquestionably that's being here on the you know your show <laughs> I mean, the f-ing industry standard that's the pinnacle i don't know what i'm going to be able to do after this and be satisfied <laughs> well you don't you said you don't do anything you don't want to do so the fact that you came here i'm just so honored that you actually came here no, that is really true and i, I you know one of the, the articles that i've written uh, that people really respond to is the article I wrote about doing people favors and, you know, I kind of don't really want to do them anymore. I also think because it's just this doesn't only relate to my business career, really relates more to my personal life, but I don't lie. I'm not going to lie to anybody. Not because I feel like I owe it to somebody else. I owe it to because when you lie, you create some kind of weight that you then carry forward with you. And so for me to say, OK, I'm going to go do that thing for you that I don't really want to do and I resent you for it is a lie. 
that'd be a lie. And it doesn't mean that you want to, you like every part of it. I didn't like sitting in the lobby down there waiting for your assistant to come get me or any of the things that just happen, like with parking or whatever, you know, I mean, I, I ever, I'm just like anybody else in that way. But the truth is, it's like my coming to do your show was about the fact that I appreciate you, Barry, because you've always been a really good person to me. And like when I've written an article that you've liked, you've told me about it. And that when we work together very in any limited sense or like, you know, on with Jay on seeing other people or what anything else, I have only enjoyed our interaction and respected you. And I can say that about a very small number of people. So therefore, getting the opportunity or being asked to do something is, is flattering. And then I want to do it. I wanted to be here and I wouldn't have otherwise. I appreciate it. Before the last question, I just have to share this with you. This is the only time this has happened. I just want, and it, it's probably a circumstance of security, whatever. The phone rings, mm-hmm. okay, and around, I'd say, 11.05 or 11.06 from security downstairs. Uh, we have a Mr. Gavin Pallone here to see you. I tell the assistant he's here. Go down and get him. He says, great. Just let me press print on this thing. Take it out of the printer. Literally, as he's walking out the door, the phone rings. I'm with him. He's wrapping it up. He's mm-hmm. going. The phone rings again. He comes back and he answers it. Yeah, yes, I'll be right down. So whether somebody downstairs didn't do their job or the fact is, but I thought to myself, Gavin is really honest, really persuasive. He's going to make a phone call in two minutes if he doesn't get somebody down there immediately to get him. That to me said how you want to be treated in business and how everybody should be treated in business. And when you mention that, I want to apologize. I'll tell you why I'm apologizing. Because I contemplated one of the first times ever, I contemplated having one of my assistants down at the security desk to meet you because I knew you were the kind of guy that you live your life in perfection in so many different lanes and you want perfection for your clients. And I thought, what would he want if Conan were in the lobby or if Larry was in the lobby, would he want somebody to greet them? And I thought to myself, well, part of him would say he wouldn't want to go all out because they'd feel uncomfortable, but maybe he would. So I was going back and forth, and they decided against it, and I was wrong. No, you, you really misinterpreted it. Here's what happened. <laughs> I, I, show, I hate being late, and I'm mad at myself. So I get here, and I get to the lobby, and I walk to the elevator, and it's 1103. And I'm supposed to be here at 11. So I'm angry with myself at this point that I'm here at 11.03. And I get into the elevator. And then the guard comes and he says, excuse me, you have to check in. So I'm like, This is high in Savon's building here. You got to have a lot of security. I don't even remember. I didn't really look at what my assistant read, which says you have to check in. So I just went right to the elevator. I'm standing in the elevator. And the guy pulls me out of the elevator. (laughs) And I have to walk back. And I give him my information. And he dealt with with another woman who did the same thing first. So I'm now waiting. Now it's (laughs) 11.05. So I'm even more of an asshole. And I'm thinking, like, Barry said this. And so I felt like I was letting you down. And then I figure, okay, now it's 11.05. Can I go up now? Please take a seat. (laughs) Fuck. So it was like, by the time your assistant got there, it's 11.09. And I don't blame anybody else. I'm just angry with myself. Like, I expect more from myself. I should have been in your office at 11 o'clock. I shouldn't have been in the lobby at 11.03. And I shouldn't have been waiting. I shouldn't have waited for your assistant until 11.09 because I just felt like I let you down. So it's really me just getting down on myself. Ask me if I care. I can tell you that you can't, you don't care, but I was, I probably, I am'd my assistant saying I'm sitting in the lobby or something like that. And then that flipped her out and then she probably made the phone call, but. And and that's a metaphor, again, of somebody like yourself, of your stature, who is twisting your insides into a balloon animal over something that somebody like myself, I mean, you have to believe that I could give a shit whether you're five or ten minutes late. I know, but I... Why do you drive yourself crazy like that? Because I have a standard for myself, you know, and it's like, I want to be honest, I want to be on time, I want to be civil, I want to do the best I can at the things that I do. You know what I mean? And that's the stuff that gives me a certain amount of satisfaction. If I feel like I did a good job, if I feel like I came to do the industry standard and I put out in that way and I respect the people. Here's a good example. When I anytime I, you know, since I go to Conan show, for instance, last night they 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 uh, taped a piece uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal that will then be in another episode. And he showed up. And he, you know, you when you're on, you're you've done this a lot of times. And you're sitting in the green room, and he just brought it. 
you know, he thought about what he's going to say and he really put it together and he just nailed it. And then you see, you know, and people who are successful and then you also see people who show up and they don't really seem to have any idea what they're going to do. And they don't seem to put a lot of energy in it because they want to protect themselves to make it seem like they're not really trying or, or, or whatever. And I really respect the people who do what Jake Gyllenhaal did, or, you know, a lot of people who are the real pros in this business, who it doesn't really matter how much fucking success they've had over time, that they really go for it, you know? And that's 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 the thing I really respect about Conan, you know? Or you look at, or getting back to Larry David. I mean, he's doing a stage show now. Guy clearly doesn't need any money. He clearly doesn't need any more accolades. He's not a kid. And he is going to put forth every ounce of energy and drive and intelligence that he has into whatever he's doing. And those are the people that I really admire in life. And so I want to be like that. And so if I show up three minutes late, I'm pissed. Got it. Which leads to the last question, a great segue. What advice do you have the person listening out there in the world that's maybe in a studio apartment living with their dad after divorce? you in the studio apartment thing? What else? What is the studio apartment like? Is there a hot plate or do they have a kitchen? I love mentioning that because there's a comedian. Do they have a twin bed or is there like a queen size bed in the studio apartment? Because you have this vision that you're people who listen to you are in studio apartments. I think there's some guy living in a four-bedroom house. He has a wife and two kids. Maybe he's in the business. Maybe he wants to be in the business. Why are they all in the studio apartment? So depressing, Barry. All right, what do you say? I to feel the... like I'm talking to, to that guy in the four-bedroom house. What not, do you not the say to the guy who's living in the palatial mansion that isn't doing what he wants to do? Here's what I'm saying, because no, I'm, I'm in that same situation. But what advice do you have for somebody who needs to, who wants to get to the next level, wants to have the kind of career you've had but doesn't exactly know how to do it or how to get there what advice would you give to somebody in a circumstance to experience the kind of life that you've had that you feel that you're blessed truthfully i this is something i thought a lot about and it goes back to your point of view about my having done a lot of different things which is basically don't be afraid to fail there's been so many different times where i've tried to do a lot of different things you know like i've acted in more things than just that and I promise. I actually do think I'm good in action, but in the other stuff, I'm so bad. But in the end, even my failing as in in whatever endeavor, like being an actor and seeing myself on screen and thinking, "Ooh, I stink," or whatever, it gave me that gave me something else. So now I decided I wanted to start directing. A couple of years ago, I've directed ten episodes of TV. I'll probably be directing a few more TV shows soon. And do you then, negotiate your own deals? You know, I I now no, I have a lawyer, but I have. Uh, <laughs> I have, I, I don't have an agent, but I do, you know, I have a couple of movies I want to get going on. But the truth is all those experiences of acting, like even having Ted Demi or, or, or Chris Thompson in that instance, or other directors I've worked with interact with me has let me think about what it's like to be the actor. And it's helped me in how I communicate with actors because I've done that. All of the stuff that I've written, a lot of the things that where I've written these magazine articles, when you get back, you know, go back. And now I've done about 60. But, you know, in the beginning, it's like, dude, I've never done this before. And you go for it and it gives you confidence. But it also has a lot of these things that I've written are personal. So it gives me a little more perspective on me. I learn a little bit about myself. I've learned about other people because I've had to interview people or do some kind of reporting. Everything that I've gone for, whether it succeeded or failed, has given me something. I think people are too afraid to fail. And and so like if you get the idea that you want to change careers and maybe there's a financial reason why you can't do it, but maybe there's not. You know, really think about it. What's what's the downside? Go, what's the downside if I really try? And then what's the downside if I don't try? And often the downside of my not trying is having to live with a question, could I have tried, could I have done that? And I think that's worse. So whoever you are, even if you're a guy who's in that terrible studio apartment, is in the Valley somewhere? Uh, Valley Village. It's in Valley Village. Well, I think Valley Village. Lower nice. Attleboro, Massachusetts. Something like that. You know, you're in that place, the hot plate shorted out. You, you know, <laughs> you're going to have to go down to the uh, AMPM mini market and get one of those two hot dogs for a dollar thing. Why not? If you Grape think to yourself, you know, I want to be a writer, write that screenplay. Or I want to be a director, make a little movie with your phone or or whatever it is you do or you want to change careers take a step down and go do that or get some education to get it done and you know i personally can tell you that as a producer i most of the things i've ever done have failed as a as a representative of talent we just talked about all the people that i have that are successful there's a lot of people i represented who weren't successful but i believed in them and i gave it my best shot i certainly failed in a lot of ways i was successful as an agent but i failed as an agent because i couldn't get out of my own way i think uh, a lot of that could be said to my, my career as a producer but it 
didn't weigh me down. I didn't say, oh, I failed this time or I failed that time. I kind of just took the experience and moved on. And I think it's made me better. Awesome. This has been incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Was I better you. than Sandy Grusha? <laughs> what are you guys? Come on. No? They I'm, weren't here it? for Sandy Grusha, probably. Yeah, but they listened to it. Grusha was better. We could ask Grusha. Yeah. Well, he's available. Go ask him. He's not doing anything. <laughs> Call him right now. Click. Hey, how's it going, Barry? He's right there. <laughs> You are so, so cold. Everybody hates Sandy. Oh, Jesus. You listening, Sandy? <laughs> Do they all? Is that true? Well, he f***ed me over a few times. <laughs> I can get away with that. But you f***ed people over. Me? I don't think I f*** people over. I don't know, maybe. If I do, I apologize. (laughs) Well, we have a cleansing here today. So thank you so much. This has been amazing. This has been one of the greatest episodes I can ever remember. And people are going to get a lot out of this because you've done so many different things and you have such a great perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.